As you turn to our passage this morning, we'll be reading from Romans 3. Uh, I'd like to set the stage just a little bit for you. It's important to note that as we're studying through a book of the Bible, as we're preaching and teaching and learning from God's Word in a systematic fashion, we can't take these passages as standalone passages. We should never, in fact, do that with Scripture, but especially when we're teaching through certain chunks, we should always remember where we've gone and where we're going. For instance, we need to keep in mind that Paul is bringing no more bad news, really, to us. He's already condemned Gentiles for suppressing the truth and for being given over into their unrighteousness. He's found the Jews just as guilty, saying that they have not maintained the covenant. They have not lived up to what circumcision represented. So he's not really bringing anything new to us, although he kind of heightens the argument, makes it more weighty, more powerful. But lest we sit in despair this morning, we must remember also where we're going. Beloved, we sit just on the precipice of Romans 3.24. The promise in Romans 5.8 that God's love is demonstrated that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. The promise of Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I implore you, hold those in your heart because this morning will be painful. So you need to keep those in your heart and your mind. And I pray I will do my best not to leave you in despair or bad news. We also should consider one very important contextual note. Remember that Paul is writing to the the Roman church, the Christians who were in Rome, and it was a mixed bag. They are Jews and Gentiles. Remember, in this context, when Paul writes the word Jew, he does not mean a particular system of religion. He means an ethnic group of people. You might say Hebrews. So he's writing to a contentious group of people who are mixed, both Jewish, Hebrew Christians, and Gentile Christians. Keep all of those in the forefront of your mind, and we will go to God's Word now. I'll read it for the sake of time, but let us hear now God's holy word from Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much and every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thanks be to God for his holy and inspired word. You know, this Sunday is a really, really busy Sunday for me. You've had me running around doing a lot of which I am very thankful and grateful to do in your service. But, you know, if you wanted a street evangelist on a bicycle, you should have just told me. I mean, I'm burning up in here. And uh, if you'll forgive me for a moment, I'm going to take off my road, but bear with me. It's not what you think. It's an object lesson. You see, for the Jews, they saw this robe as a part of religion. And I lay it aside for a very intentional reason. No, I am not against wearing robes. No, I am not trying to be cavalier in my preaching. I'm trying to implore upon your conscience a truth that Paul is teaching. You see, he starts and says, Then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? What's the value of our religion? What's the value of the law and the promises of God? What if they're unrighteous? Which we know the Jews were. They were sinners. They disobeyed the covenant. They broke it time and time again. So do I. I'm a sinner. I'm no different from you. You see, in the Reformation, they fought a very hard battle. Our heritage, they were dealing with all of the baggage from Roman Catholicism. They were saying, you know, should should we dress up in these great robes with many colors and tall hats and have scepters and smoking lamps? Should we do all of these things and preach a gospel while our people are paupers in the pew? Obviously not. Now before you cast me out into the town square and flog me, that's not exactly why I took the robe off. I took the robe off to demonstrate that we all stand before God. He says we're all under sin, Jews and Gentiles. I'll put it back on in a moment when it's appropriate. But we must first walk through the passage. The Gentiles then cast their convictions against Paul. He anticipates, he's got sort of a rhetorical language here. He anticipates their questioning. But if our unrighteousness serves to show that God is righteous, what shall we say? Or, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's as if they're saying, now wait. If we can live apart from the law and be in Christ, if our sin even displays that God is good, if it magnifies His glory, why then do we need the law? Why do we need systems of religion? We have to be careful. You know, we have two different styles of worship here. We are mixed bag. We are Jews and Greeks. Neither is wrong nor right. But we have to be careful to divine the word and its teaching. If we come to worship, if we come to God with a system of religion that professes our goodness because of X, Y, and Z, maybe it's wearing robes, maybe it's dressing up, maybe it's singing a certain style of music, whatever it may be, if we come to God with all of those things, He says, I'm sorry, but you're not good and you're not righteous. None of those things bring you before me rightly. But, he says, to clarify, 
their condemnation is just. Well, what does he mean? He means to the Gentiles, those who are without the law, the trappings of religion. You know, in the early service, I led music with an acoustic guitar. We were singing biblical hymns, but it's a little bit less weighty. He says, do not tempt your brothers. Do not do evil. Do not parade around and you're not having to be traditional simply so that God's glory may be magnified. He says you need to serve one another. You need to recognize that everyone, whether Jew or Greek, is unrighteous in my eyes, save for the grace of Christ. But we will get there in a moment. So he continues on in our passage after dividing between the Jews and the Greek and demonstrating both of their unrighteousness, both of their unfaithfulness. He goes further and deeper, and this is where it gets painful, beloved, and I'm sorry. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? You must recognize he's not talking about Jewish people again by religion. He's talking about Jewish Christians. He's saying, in effect, are we Christians any better off? Not at all. In the eyes of the law, when it comes to salvation, when it comes before right standing of God, do we Christians have any more of a claim in our good works, in the things that we do? He says, absolutely not. None is righteous. No one, no one understands. No one even seeks after God. And he goes on to kind of categorize some sins, which I I believe if you'll meditate with me for a moment, we all do. Who doesn't open their mouth? as if it's a grave. Who doesn't slander or lie or gossip? Of course, we all do. But, you know, a lot of us, in our tempting and our sin, still try to hash out that one part of the law that we can obey faithfully in order to gain some righteousness. You know, when I was going through seminary, it was a tough time. If you do it the right way, it's an undressing of your soul. God says, you foolish one. Why are you trying to bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifice when it's you that I desire? You see, I walk through seminary time and time again trying to earn God's favor, trying to be appropriate for the calling, trying to say, you know, my gifts and skills are that good. I really should be a preacher. Trying to earn my way into it. You know what I heard time and again? Philip, you're not righteous, you're a sinner. You don't bring anything to me. I'm calling you to serve. You know, more aptly, Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, I'm calling you to die. It's a calling to come and die. You have nothing in your hand that you bring. But I call you to come and serve my people. What a painful lesson that is, but it stands for all of us. But you know, he goes on quoting some more of the Psalms and the prophets saying their feet are swift to shed blood. And, you know, we, we quickly rationalize and try to justify. I said, even as I was working through preparing for this sermon, I said, you know, oh, well, thankfully I can check off some of these things. Some of these areas I can still display righteousness, right? I can still earn God's favor. I don't shed any blood. Maybe I nick my finger while chopping an onion or something like that. But surely I don't shed other people's blood. You know, I'm not a murderer. God says No. You're not righteous. You don't bring anything before me. And that indictment sits over all of us. We don't have anything to give. But I don't want you to sit in despair. We continue on in the last two verses of our chapter. 
or our passage, excuse me, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. If we were looking for a way out, there it went. The whole world accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I don't know about you, but that sits on me as a burden. The law brings knowledge of sin. How do we deal with that? How do we come to God and say, all I have is sin? Well, brothers and sisters, I encourage us where the scripture is maybe hard or painful or confusing at times, we must do what our Heritage tells us to do. We interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So we look to Paul's own explanation of this passage. How can he say no one is righteous? How can he say that all are condemned? There are even Christians in Christ. How can he sit there and say no one is righteous? He goes on in Galatians 3 to unpack this, dealing with the law and the promise. It says in verse 19, and I'm not making this up, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring. In a little context, the offspring here is talking about Christ. It's talking about Jesus. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, listen, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It gives the knowledge of sin. He continues, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. You catch that? It leaves no room for your own self-righteousness. It leaves no room for your own justification. It's your guardian. It binds you under sin so that you can never think that anything you do will ever please God for salvation and for righteousness. It's painful, but it's necessary. And he continues, he says, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. Listen, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you'll bear with me for a moment. You see, that's what this robe represents. The reason why the reformers were so adamant about not having dress and not having the flowery flowery pictures of religion is because they realized that you and I are no different. The priest, the preacher, the pastor must not be elevated in your mind or your subconscious. After all, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And this is what Paul is saying. If you are baptized into Christ then you have put on Christ. This robe is a representation that we are all the same in the Lord. If you are baptized, you have put on Christ. If you have put on Christ, then you are saved by grace through faith. 
So yes, the law brings condemnation only. The law brings a knowledge of intimate sin so that every day you wake up and say, God, I just messed up again. I don't even want you some days. I run from you. I turn from you. I don't speak your blessing upon people. I don't help people. And he says, look, that's not going to save you anyway. That's to drive you to Jesus Christ and His grace. It's to drive you and say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. For I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Isn't that what we say baptism is? It's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign and seal that the washing, the washing of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's our engrafting into Christ. We have put on Christ. It's our participating in the benefits of the covenant of grace. That's why you all stood. That's why we stand and say, we covenant with you to raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We exist to be a blessing and says it represents your engagement to be the Lord's. Notice that we do not believe that by baptizing Shane, he will automatically become a Christian. It's not even our dedication of the child to the Lord. It's the Lord's dedication to the child that if he is in Christ, he will in fact be saved. So dwell and meditate upon your own baptism. You have put on Christ, you will be saved. bring it full circle the passage that Barry alluded to when baptizing him Colossians 2 in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh putting off the entrapments of religion the things that you think you bring to God for good by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Beloved, that's what we do in baptism. We proclaim covenant blessing upon ourselves and upon the child or any who might be baptized. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Don't you see? You can't bring anything anyway. So cling to cross. Cling to Jesus. Look for His blessing. I'll end with this illustration and I'll try to remain composed. My grandmother passed away this, this past fall and I loved her dearly. And you know, she, she was a Southern Belle and she wore makeup until the day that she died. And, and I want to be clear here, ladies. I'm not saying when I get to my point that you can't wear makeup or you can't, you know, I mean, that's not my point. But beloved, she was unconscious for the last two months of her life. She had someone else put on makeup until the day she died. So what's the point? That's the imagery of the law. 
You see, God intended the law in the beginning to make us more human in His image, to help us to flourish as we were created to be. But what does it do under sin? It only points to the stark reality of death. My grandmother was beautiful, but that makeup looked horrible on her when she died. It was such a contrast of a beautiful woman loved by the Lord and the ugliness and putrefaction of death. That is the law. It serves only to condemn you and to bring the knowledge of sin to me. We stand with nothing in our hands. Go to Christ. Put on Christ. He is your only hope. Now, if you don't remember anything else I've said this morning, remember this. You cannot bring your good works to Jesus and expect anything. But you can bring your sin and your pain and your loneliness and your brokenness and your ugliness, and you can expect grace and healing and life and a resurrection power that enables you to bless everyone that you meet. Beloved, that is the gospel. You must know that you are not righteous, nothing in your hand you bring. But you must rest in Christ, the living Lord of all the universe. Amen and amen.